So tonight we're going to look at unit, uh, units, <laughs> chapters three and four, and I've titled it, Cows of Bashan, You Had Your Chance. Have you read about the cows of Bashan in Amos chapter four? Oh, well, you'll get to be introduced to the cows of Bashan tonight. What? Yeah, that, some people may not come back after tonight, but yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's an unflattering comparison. It really is. So, so last week we talked about how Amos is this shepherd and fig dresser from the southern kingdom, Judah. And he's called by God for a very short stint in a prophetic ministry, so he's not a professional prophet. Uh, for a very short time, he's going to wander across the, the border to the northern kingdom, Israel, and he's going to proclaim judgment, instruction, oracles of woe on the northern kingdom. I mean, this is a recipe for just somebody being absolutely hated. He's not from the northern kingdom. He's not a professional religious person. He has no standing in Israel, and yet he goes up to Israel to preach against the Israelites. He's Jewish himself, just like the Israelites are, but he's from the southern kingdom, and there's great antipathy between the two. But as we'll see, in the midst of his uh, preaching and proclamation, uh, he does also talk about the judgment on Judah as well, as well as other places. But even while he's talking about Israel, there are occasional references to Judah as well. So he's an equal opportunity prophet. But he's primarily talking to the northern kingdom Israel. And tonight what we do is we start to get into the lengthy and detailed pronouncements of warnings and judgment against Israel. And these pronouncements or oracles or sermons, they're all kind of the same thing, they tend to move, the four of them that we're going to look at, we're going to look at two tonight and two next week, the four of them that we're going to look at tend to move from general to, to specific. So chapter three, which is tonight, are just general warnings. Chapter 4 is like gloom and doom. And he specifically says, it's because your religion is empty. You're ostensibly, in theory, doing all the right things, but you don't mean it. You're whitewashed tombs. Um, and so we're going to look at that tonight. Next week, we look at the third oracle, which is chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, which is an entreaty by God to, he's saying, please, turn back, repent, come on back. You can, there's still time. I'm patient. There's still time. Please come. The purpose of this, the purpose of judgment is always repentance. It's always salvation. It's not just condemnation. Condemnation is the consequence, but the purpose of proclaiming judgment is always to call them to repentance, to call them back. But then 518 through 614 is just, is very negative. It's a, it's a pronouncement of woes. Woe to you. I've always said that if, if Jesus or the Father or the Holy Spirit ever starts a sentence with you, whoa, you're, you're in trouble. You better listen up. It's, it's, it's a problem. And the, again, the amount of hypocrisy that these oracles level at God's people is just amazing. It's, we're talking about the problem of hypocrisy. Trying to fool God into making him think that they are somebody, that they are substantial people of faith, and they just really aren't. 
Uh, and the key to every oracle, again, is repentance, to find their way back to God and do what he calls them to do. So um, let's get into it. We're going to unpack these verse by verse and then wrap up with some application. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So if you remember last week, there were uh, seven oracles of judgment against all of the nations surrounding Israel, and then the eighth oracle was the introduction to Israel's, and then everybody else's oracle was two to three verses long. The introduction to Israel's oracle was ten verses long, and now there's four chapters of oracles against Israel. So by comparison, everybody else got off easy, but the, God is really going after his people in the northern kingdom. Verse 2, uh, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. Here you go. If you're a parent, how often do you go around looking for other, ch other people's children to discipline and punish? And if you do, how well does that work out for you? <laughs> okay, right? Okay. Your children, though, you're going to discipline. So that's essentially what God is saying in, in verse 2. So verse 1 is a reminder to remember. As you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that God is constantly calling his people to, and Paul does this a, a lot, comparatively speaking, a lot in the New Testament too, is you have to remember. You have to remember who God is. You have to remember what he's done. I said a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, on our anniversary Sunday morning, um, that I think it's important for the lead pastor to, to be the vision caster, but what is often overlooked or, or goes unnoticed or isn't done, which I think is so important, is that the lead pastor is also the keeper of the history. We have to remember. We have to remember who we are and what God has done for us in the past. Uh, the fact that we're here is great, but the story leading up to getting us here was amazing and how he did that through Justin and others and uh, it was just, uh, we have to be able to hang on to that. So uh, verse 1 is a reminder to remember who they are by virtue of the Abraham story and the Exodus uh, redemption story. They are God's people. And both Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms, believed, however, the people there believed that because they were God's people, they were immune from harm, that he would always protect them from harm no matter what. And we need to remember, and they didn't remember that privilege is wonderful, but it's not a shelter. Privilege is not an entitlement. Privilege comes with great responsibilities. And God's word is very clear about that. One of the problems you and I as humans, we have, it, it, we, we want all the benefits of privilege without any of the accountability, without any of the cost. It's just natural for us to do that. Again, that's not necessarily a value judgment. It's just an observation of the way uh, that we are. And we do the same thing with Christian salvation. So people 2,900 years ago in Amos's context are no different than us now. We do the same thing with Christian salvation. We assume that if we're saved, it also somehow obligates God to protect us from harm in this world. Yet Jesus himself, at the end of his uh, famous last words on the night before he's betrayed in John chapter 16, he ends with this, in this world you will have trouble. <laughs> um, when I first became a Christian, somebody handed me a book that looked a lot like a Bible. It was navy blue leather with gold leaf um, pages. How many of you remember those old gold leaf page Bibles? Remember those? Okay. 
Um, but it was a book that was titled The Promises of God, and it was all the verses in the Bible, a lot of them taken completely out of context, that promised me that I was going to have this life of success, achievement, happiness, great wealth, and joy all the time. And that was a pretty good deal. Uh, when Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, that's a promise. <laughs> and I never found that verse in that book. <laughs> but, but you see how we are as human beings? That's, that's one of the challenges um, that we have. And, and verse 2, he says, I chose you and you only, and yet you despise me. I chose you, and yet you despise me. And so there are going to be consequences of you rejecting me. All of us, I think, have experienced that horrible feeling as human beings, that terrible hurt when we choose to love someone, choose to serve someone, choose to do and be anything for that person, and they return that love with scorn, rejection, and deception. I mean, that hurts. You know, we're told theologically we're not supposed to do it for that reason. It, it doesn't paper over the fact that it still hurts. So God says, get ready, we're going to have a little talk now. So we've got four talks coming up. Here's chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. And he asks some rhetorical questions, Amos does. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does the snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing a secret to his servants, the prophets. Um, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? <clears throat> so what's going on here? These are most of most of this passage. They're rhetorical questions. What does a rhetorical question do? A rhetorical question is a literary technique designed to have the audience draw the conclusion that the speaker wants them to draw. It's it's a way of asking a question that's really making a statement. You, you know the answer to this. You know where this is going. You know the outcome of this. These rhetorical questions early in the passage, specifically point to the natural consequences of our behavior. Certain behaviors lead to predictable outcomes. Is that not true? Okay. Have you ever heard anybody say at the end of something bad that happens, you ever heard anybody say, well, who didn't see that coming? Okay, that's, that's the idea here. This is, this is known as the law of cause and effect. It's known as the law of sowing and reaping. I had it down as the law of reaping and sowing, but that's kind of backwards. That, that's the problem. A lot of people want to reap without ever sowing. That is actually one of the problems. In Deuteronomy, God lays out this very simple principle. If you adhere to my word, you will have blessing. If you rebel against my word, you will have frustration and destruction. Here's what human beings want to do. We want to rebel against the word and have the blessing. <laughs> We've been trying for millennia to figure out how to do that. I still try to do that. 
And I'm a, I'm a professional religious person. And I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. We, we want to disobey and still have our own way. So verse 3, two if two people have agreed to walk together to be in fellowship, partnership, and agreement, how can that continue if they are constantly at odds with each other, right? And we just know that in relationship. We know that in relationship there will be conflict and deterioration and repair and you got to work at it. But if there is just constant conflict, you know that that relationship is eventually doomed if nobody's interested in working on repair. And, and the Israelites are at odds with God, and, and he's saying, how long are you going to continue this? Verse 4, a lion does not roar to attack if there's no prey, nor does a lion growl in contentment if he's not eating anything. And God is the lion. He's Aslan. And he's roaring. He's unhappy. The picture of Aslan, if you, if you know the literary picture of Aslan, is that he's wonderful to love, but you also need to fear him. And then verse 5, again, is cause and effect. A bird will not wander into a snare unless there's bait, and a trap is not going to spring unless there's prey. Cause and effect. Verse 6, it's time for you to listen. Amos says God is coming, and he has done that. He's, Amos is saying, yeah, and he's done it. He, he's fine. He takes responsibility for it. Not because he's filled with malevolence or malevolence, however you pronounce it. I hate that word. Not because he's filled with that, but because he's responding to their rejection of him and their hypocrisy. That's why. And then verses 7 or 8 are like, they're like Amos's disclaimer. You know how when you have something tough to say, you always want to throw in a little disclaimer so it kind of separates you from the message, you know? Um, he says, look, God never acts without warning his people. This is not coming out of left field. You've been warned over and over and over. Verse 4, when, chapter 4, when we get into it, you'll see all the constant uh, warnings. Um, you've heard the prophets. You've rejected the prophets over and over again for centuries. And now you're going to reap what you sow. And he's saying, look, when God calls a prophet, he can't do anything but speak. The prophets cannot but speak. There's something about the first pastor I ever worked for vocationally, Bill Nothelfer. Some of you have heard me mention him before. Um, just a great, great guy. Ron, you remember Bill, don't you? Um, he used to say, do not go into pastoral ministry unless you absolutely cannot do anything else with your life. Not, not meaning like you're not a, you're not, I, I'm, I'm, I'm capable of doing nothing but this. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you just have this burning desire. You can't do anything else. And, and the reason is because you're going to be called by God to do some things that people are not going to like. And, and, and I'll tell you, the gift of prophecy, the gift of being a prophet is the most difficult. Um, I would argue that my gifts are teaching, preaching, and shepherding. Uh, Josh Prather, if you know him, he's one of our elders. He is gifted in the area of prophecy as a church prophet. And, of course, as a result, number one, that's one of the reasons why we wanted him on the elder board was because he would 
never allow us to get comfortable and complacent. Because <laughs> he just can't. He just can't let anybody do that. But number two, we, we just call him Mr. Pushback because everybody's always pushing back on him. But that's his gifting. He cannot but speak. So Amos is saying, I have no choice but to lay this out for you. So I know you're not going to like me. That's okay. And then verses 9 through 15. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod. Now, remember where Ashdod is, right? It's part of the Philistine uh, kingdom. So the Philistines. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod's and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. Now, think about this. Israel, the Jews, have never really had great relationships with the Egyptians or the Philistines. Okay, so think about that. And say, assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you. Your strongholds will be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion, two legs or a piece of an ear. This is some of the most graphic language you're going to find in the Bible. Right here. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or the piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, Israel, be rescued with a corner of a couch and part of a bed. I'll explain that. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I, transgressions, I, shall, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. What does that mean? I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. Now, those of us who live in Arizona might understand that language. Okay. And the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So verses 11 and 12 are pretty wild when you think about it. God is saying to Israel's enemies, the Philistines and the Egyptians, watch what I do to my own people because they are living a life of oppression and sin. They're living a life of expo exploitation. They're living a life of immorality. Watch what I do to my, ver my very own people and learn from this. He's using his own people as an example to those he has not chosen as a reason why they ought to think twice about being immoral and being people of, that exploit others and, and of living a life of oppression. That's pretty heavy stuff. And he ends it by saying, because they have lived lives as hypocrites, I'm going to judge them by surrounding them with the Assyrians. And this isn't going to be pretty. This is not the Syrians from Damascus. This is the Assyrians who are north and east of the Syrians. This is Nineveh. This is where Jonah went. Said, I'm, I'm supposed to tell them about God? There's no way. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, Matyr writes this. The agent of overthrow is both the surrounding Assyrians and the avenging Lord. The sovereign Lord is behind it, but the tool will be the Assyrians. And that eventually happened in 722, about 30 years later. And it was brutal. 
And the Babylonians then came in and, and sacked the southern kingdom in 605, 597, and 587. And the Babylonians were kind compared to the Assyrians. The Babylonians carried off 70,000 of the, of the Jews back to Babylon and said, you can live here. And they made a life for themselves there over the course of a couple of generations. Some historians say that the Assyrians of this age were the most barbaric people to ever live. I personally disagree with that because I think the Oakland Raider fans are the most barbaric people that ever lived, but what do I know, okay? <clears throat> I went to one Cardinals game when they played against the Raiders, and I was, in I was in fear for my life the entire time I was there, and I didn't even have a Cardinals jersey on, okay? Um, and remember the context. You've got to remember this context. Israel's economy at the time was as strong as it had ever been. It was reminiscent of when uh, Solomon was king. And one of the lessons that you and I should remember is that a strong economy will not save us spiritually. Nothing wrong with a strong economy. I'm not anti-strong economy. I like strong economies. Because everybody benefits from that. You know, you raise the tide, okay? That's good. But if it comes with an ethos of rebellion and disobedience to God, it's not going to do us any good whatsoever. Our problems, every problem we have is at root a spiritual problem. And so just having a good economy is not going to fix any of our spiritual problems. And if we're using that to paper over our spiritual problems, it's just going to get worse. It's unsustainable. And then we get to verses 12 through 15. As I mentioned, some of the most graphic language you'll find in the Bible you try to pull prey out of a lion that's devouring it, if you're lucky, you might get a leg or a piece of an ear. Um, that's known as a remnant. You ever heard of a remnant when, it, when you talk about the theology of Israel? Okay, it's a tiny little piece that, get, that gets left over that somehow doesn't get um, destroyed. Okay? So for Israel, it was a, a part of the couch or a little patch of the bed. That's their remnant. Here's what, here's what God is saying. No matter... How much I judge you, there's always still going to be this small remnant of believers. You remember with Elijah? He said, God, I'm the only one. Remember his big pity party? He says, I'm the only one. And God reminds him, well, there's, I know, most everybody's turned their back on me, but there are 7,000. There is a small, tiny remnant of 7,000. And, and, and history has always proven that this will be true. God will execute his judgment, but the primary um, purpose of that judgment is repentance. I know that's hard to hear and hard to understand, but that's what it's for. Sooner or later, God gets to a point, he's a very patient God, but sooner or later he gets to a point where his patience runs out and he has to do something. And verses um, 13 through 15 emphasize that the two reasons for this judgment are number one, false hypocritical religion, and two, the accumulation of wealth through the systematic oppression and exploitation of the poor. That's really important to understand. And, and so why Bethel? Bethel is really symbolic. It's a, it's a city that's right on the border between Israel and Judah. It's the city that was the scene of Jacob, who became Israel when his name was changed in Genesis, where he had his wrestling match with God. Remember that? And they built an altar there, and it was a place, a sacred place of worship. Uh, the word Bethel means the house of God, the house of the Lord. 
but they had taken that altar and that house of the Lord and they turned it into pagan worship. They had sullied it. So God was going to judge that. In fact, in, um, in the prophet Hosea, Hosea calls Bethel at one point sarcastically, in great, with great snark, he calls it Bethaven. And it's not a mistake. He's saying the house of the Lord has turned into a house of iniquity. Bethaven means a house of iniquity. So this is a place that where God was supposed to be properly worshipped, but it's been, it's been sullied, and he's disturbed by that. And he even goes so far as to say that the horns of the altar are going to be cut off. What's that about? On the corners of the altar were these horns, which were symbolic of the protection of God. And he says, I'm going to go and cut off those horns to help you understand that I am coming, and you're not going to be protected from my judgment. He's, he's saying, hey, Israelites, listen up. It's time for you to listen. And, and then verse 15 is just straight-out sarcastic condemnation of the wealth brought about by injustice. Your winter and summer homes will be destroyed. And again, he's not condemning wealth, but he is condemning the, the attitude and the perspective that brings about wealth through immorality and oppression. So that's the end of oracle number one. Now that you're feeling encouraged and lifted up, let's move on to oracle number two. Uh, chapter four, verses one through three. We get to hear about the cows now. Hear this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, uh, who are on the mountain in Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, uh-oh, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take, away, take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall, go down, you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Some pretty good historical stuff in this. So, right out of the gate, is this a message specifically for the women? Yes. It's a message directed specifically to the women of Israel. They are just as bad as the men. They are not necessarily the agents of the injustice, but they are benefiting from the injustice. They know about the injustice, and they don't care. They like the benefits of the injustice and the oppression. They knew what was going on. We're willing to receive those benefits. That makes them just as guilty. It's like the crime of receiving stolen goods. Hey, I didn't steal that. Yeah, but you still received it. You knew it wasn't yours. That's a problem. Bashan was a rich, was known as a rich pasture land northeast of the Sea of Galilee, known as the very, very best place in the Fertile Crescent to fatten up the herd. So, so God is really talking some trash here to the women. It's a little offensive. Okay. It's a cutting and graphic reference. In verses 2 to 3, he says, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be let out like you were on fish hooks. Historians and archaeologists have evidence that the Assyrians literally let out their captives um, with ropes that were tethered to people's noses and lips with fish hooks, if you can see that. <clears throat> That's what the Assyrians did to the people that they uh, conquered. And 
And not only that, but they're going to be led out through the breaches in the walls of the city, meaning the Assyrians are going to carve right through the best defenses of the Israelites or of anybody in those days, which was your city wall. If you've studied Babylon, so like when you're reading Daniel um, or even a little bit into Esther, but primarily if you're reading Daniel, um, you know that the city of Babylon was surrounded by this, by this incredible wall, the city wall, which they said literally could never be breached. They had built the unbreachable wall. It was 75 feet high. Think about that. So about seven stories high. And th this was built in, you know, in the 600s B.C., okay? 75 feet high. Um, it was so wide <clears throat> that they used to have chariot races around the top of it, four chariots abreast. That's how wide it was. It was absolutely unbreachable. They said that they were an empire that would never fall because they had this wall. And so they, uh, if you study these walls, it's really fascinating stuff. They had these, um, uh, I can't remember the name right now, but they had these um, the breaching machines that they had manufactured, that people had manufactured, where um, you, would, you would run up to the wall with this breaching machine and you'd start ramming into the wall and into the gates. And they have, again, pictures like that picture of the, they have pictures of it, you know, drawings and things like that. Um, and uh, um, if you volunteered or were volunteered for that duty, you were the one doing this, what they would do on the top of the wall when you were doing that, they would pour boiling oil on you. So it was kind of a death sentence to, to be volunteered for that. But you had to do it in order to get through the wall. The Babylonian walls were unbreachable. But what happened? Didn't they lose? In 539, on October 31st, didn't they lose the war without, quote, metaphorically speaking, a, a shot ever being fired? So what happened was the Persians and the Midians, uh, the Medes, got together and they said, we figured out a way to breach the wall. The Euphrates River runs through uh, Babylon, and so there was a place where they had to make room in the wall for the river. So they went upstream from the Euphrates River, and it took a long time for them to do it, but they rerouted the Euphrates River. So eventually, the riverbed was dry, and they just marked in, marched right into Babylon and took the city. That's how, they, that's how they conquered Babylon, essentially without ever firing a shot. And, and so what God is saying here, what Amos is saying is, this is it's going to be like this, only they're going to be violent with you. They're going to breach the wall that easily, and, th and, they're, and they're just going to start running roughshod over you, and they're going to kill you, okay? And then you'll be cast out into Harmon. I, n nobody has any idea what that is or where that is, interestingly enough. Uh, but the scholars do say that it is certainly representative of captivity and slavery. That's the point of it. And then verses 4 and 5 <clears throat> Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving on that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For, uh, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. <coughs> um, this is all about their hypocrisy and their self-exaltation and the sarcasm literally just drips off these words here. Yeah, God can be really sarcastic. God tells the Israelites, here's what he's saying. Go ahead, come to church, 
sing your songs, raise your hands piously, take communion, pray, pray so that everybody sees you. The problem is, is that not only do you not mean it, not only is it empty, but you're using it to try to manipulate me. And, and God would say this, the only thing that's worse than empty worship is worship that simply tries to manipulate God, and that's what they're doing. And, and seriously, how many people today try to make the business of God, the worship of God, the playing at church all about self? It is one of, listen, if, if you think I'm the only one whining about this, just read what other pastors have to say about this. It's the same everywhere. It's self-praise. It's self-exaltation. It's self-righteousness. It's being true to myself. It's self-actualization. I still don't know what self-actualization means, but it sure sounds pious and cool. But God is warning his people, and he said, I've been doing this forever. Don't make this about you. You Don't make this about you. In verses 6 through 11, he just starts to line list all the warnings. I gave, you clean li- <clears throat> I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were uh, yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain to another city. One field would have rain, and, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water, and they still would not be satisfied. And even then, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Another word for mildew is mold. How many of you get scared when you see mold around your house? Okay. Uh, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence in the ma- after the manner of Egypt, It's a reference to pre-Exodus. I killed your young men with a sword, and I carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Um, So these verses describe several ways, several divine acts that God tried to use to help his people to see, to turn back to him. And he reminds them of him. And again, he lets them know, this is not coming out of left field. You've had ample warning. I I am not a capricious, capricious, arbitrary, uh, malevolent God. You've had your chances. Cleanness of teeth, that is an interesting way to describe being starved, isn't it? Yeah, I starved you. I gave you cleanness of teeth. (laughs) I starved you. That's what he's saying. Very poetic. Not in a really happy way, but it's very poetic, okay? No response. Verse 7, I controlled the rain, which means I controlled your harvest, which means I controlled your economy. No response. One of the ironies here, of course, is that For years and years and years, the Israelites have been worshiping the pagan gods of weather and agriculture. And God is saying, I am the God of weather and agriculture. I'm the God of everything. I'm the God that created it all. You know? So I'm going to show you what happens when you worship these false gods. 
Verse 8, rather than turning to me, you tried to fix stuff yourself. Yet even though you were able to find some relief, ultimately you weren't satisfied. Here you go. There's no rain. So rather than praying to God and repenting and going to God, well, we'll just go to the cities where there is rain. But that didn't even satisfy them. That didn't really fix the problem. And they still didn't return to God. Blight and mildew. It's another way of saying disease and decay. And again, you know, if you're, <clears throat> you're at your house and you spot mold, I mean, how quickly are you to, you're like, we got to fix this. This is a problem. We got to fix this. Uh, how many of us, like right now during this season, how many of us are trying to keep our hands sanitized because of the flu and the cold and everything? Who, I'm not going to ask who's had the flu because I haven't had that, so it's all about me. Who's had that nasty cold that's gone around? Anybody? The one where it takes two weeks after it's over to get rid of it. Okay, but we're all, we're all walking around. Hand, I'm washing my hands everywhere I go, whether I need it or not, you know. I figure if I deny that the flu is real, it won't attack me. That's, that's kind of my, you know, that's my thing. So God gave them all of this. They didn't return. Verses 11, 10 and 11, I caused epidemics and loss of battles and wars, and you didn't even return to me then. And then the last of uh, Oracle number 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because... <clears throat> I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So there's that language. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. It's a declaration of his authority and his sovereignty. Are there any words that are more terrifying, perhaps, than prepare to meet your maker. Isn't that something that you say like before a duel to kind of talk trash, you know? Three Musketeers used to say that. Prepare to meet your maker. You know? uh, John Oswald, who's an Old Testament scholar, writes this. It is apparent that the Israelites were asking God, I've talked about this a lot because I think it's fascinating. It's apparent that the Israelites were asking God to appear on their behalf in a great day of vindication, the day of the Lord making them the rulers of the world, as we'll see again in chapter 5 next week. But Amos explains to them that they are about to meet God in a way that they were not expecting. The Israelites wanted the day of the Lord to come because they thought it would be a day of light and a day of victory and a day of, you know, showing everybody else who's boss. And Amos, just as um, Isaiah does in Isaiah 58, Isaiah 58 says the same thing. You pine for the day of the Lord. You shouldn't. It's going to be destruction for you. I can't wait for Jesus to come back because all of these people who have been harassing me, they're going to get theirs. Ah, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to be asking for. I really want to go to the New Jerusalem. I don't know how pretty it's going to be when Jesus comes again, though. Could be tough. God is laying it on the line here. He's saying, get ready to reap what you've sown. And it reminds me of, of, of that a little bit of that conversation that God and Job have at the end of Job. When Job is restored and, and now Job goes to God and he says, you know what, I got some questions for you. Because, you, you know, after what Job went through, you'd want to be able to ask some questions, you know. And what does God say? 
okay, but first I'm going to ask you some questions. And, oh, by the way, gird yourself up. Put on your protective gear because I'm, I'm about to really kick you hard. So where were you when I hung the moon? Where were you when I created the seas? And, the, where were it, and he just goes on and on. At one point, Job goes, okay, I get it. And God says, ah, a little bit more. And then he goes on and on and on and on. He just keeps going. And at the end, Job's like, okay, never mind. Job got it, but the Israelites aren't getting it. Um, and, and, of course, the irony is that Job never really did anything deserving. He was, he was a righteous guy. God said, look at Job. He's a righteous guy. And Satan said, <laughs> we'll see how righteous he is if you let me take all of his stuff away. You know? So he wasn't like the Israelites in that regard. God is saying, I have the power and the authority to judge you. I'm the maker of all things and the sustainer of all things. I am the sovereign Lord of hosts. That Lord of hosts language means that he is the commander of all armies. That's what it means. So you think you have military might? Next week we're going we're gonna to look at this. You think you have military might. God's military might is insurmountable. He is a general in command of all power. So you look at verses, um, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Let me just hit those again. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving uh, of that which is leaven, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, uh, for you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. You love to play at religion. You love to do all of this stuff. You love to do the right things. Um, there's a problem with that, though. If you don't really have a true heart of repentance, a genuine and sincere heart for God. There's a problem for that, and God knows it. God is not happy when his worship is sullied by this stuff. So, a couple of New Testament passages I want to mention as we close. Look at John chapter 2. Both of them um, are describing the same or, or a similar event, depending on which scholars you read. <clears throat> So in John chapter 2, early in, ostensibly early in Jesus' ministry, so in the first of his three years ministering, he heads into the temple over Passover. Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a, a house of trade. Another way it's described is a den of robbers. His disciples remembered that it was uh, written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Let me stop there and mention this. So, at Passover, um, people would make these journeys into Jerusalem to worship at the temple and to offer sacrifice at the temple. And they were supposed to bring the best animal that they had to sacrifice. You always brought the best. If you read Malachi, one of the things that God is angry about is that the, the Jews had gotten into the practice of if they had a hundred sheep, they would look for uh, if you ranked them one through a hundred, they would look for number 100, and that's the one they would bring to sacrifice. So the one that was blind had one leg and 
was about 90 years old and about to fall over. That's the one they'd sacrifice. You know, you're supposed to sacrifice the best. But what was going on here in the temple in Jerusalem was as the people would bring in the, their very best, they would have inspectors to inspect the animal. And they would always find some flaw with the animal that made it not worthy of the sacrifice. So they would take the animal and say, you have to leave the animal with us. And then they would say, you have to go and buy a new animal from these authorized animal dealers here in the temple. This is literally what's going on. And they're all in cahoots with each other, all under the auspices of the, the Mosaic law, the Jewish religion, okay? So go and buy from these, uh, these um, uh, authorized dealers. But here you go. We have special currency in the temple. So whatever currency you have, whatever money you have, you have to go to the money changers and change it for the special temple currency. Well, how do you think the exchange rates work there? They were awful. They were uneven. All of that stuff. They were... They were, they were getting them coming and going. What, who else do we describe like that? Car dealers. I know. So anyway, sorry if you're a car dealer. But yeah, they get you coming and going. If they don't get you on the car, they get you on the financing. This is what was going on. So they're taking their animals. They're making them buy new ones. And the exchange rate is totally unfair. Jesus goes in and says, this is not what the temple is for. You have sullied. Everything that God is about. You've sullied the Mosaic law under the guise of religion. That makes it even worse. And so he goes in there and he does this. And what's interesting is, is um, scholars say that the way it's worded about how he's fashioning this, this whip is it's, it's a picture of the patience of the Old Testament God. The patience. We think of the Old Testament God as this guy who's constantly judging. you got to remember, he put up with stuff for literally centuries before he did anything. This, here's Jesus sitting in the temple, slowly, patiently, methodically, weaving this whip. Hoping that maybe they'll change. They finally don't, they fi he finally realizes they're not, they're not going to stop. Okay? So he goes in there and does that because... Because they've turned God's house into a place of oppression and exploitation. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What is that question really asking? By what authority? Who gave you, the, who made you king? What authority do you have? And Jesus answered them with kind of a little riddle. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But, of course, he was speaking of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, even through Jesus' resurrection, the disciples just didn't get it. Then they've been walking with Jesus for three years. But then... Once the resurrection hit, then it was the aha started kicking in. So the other one is Matthew 21. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers 
and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, as it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. It's really interesting. The birds that people would bring from their homes were always way better than pigeons. But the authorized dealers were only selling pigeons. Do you see how goofy that is? Uh, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm God. Those are fighting words with the, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those are fighting words there. And leaving them, he went out to the city, uh, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. So the professional religious people are angry at Jesus because they're turning the good news of who God is into meism. Uh, you should Google meism and just look at it. We live in a culture now of just meism. Everything is about self, everything is about me, everything is about being true to myself. Whatever I want, follow your heart, all of that, meism. Well, they were doing it back then, too. These were people who were supposed to be pious and trained and devoted to the covenant of God, Yahweh. And, and they had made it all about themselves. And, and so Jesus is essentially saying, you need to be, re you need to be saved from your religion you need to be saved from your religiosity. You need to be redeemed from your own self-worship. It's the greatest sin. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, in chapter 3, when the adversary comes and he's tempting, and in verse 6 of chapter 3, it says that when the woman saw that the fruit was good to eat and was a delight to her eyes, and was desired to make one wise. Okay? That's the triad of temptation right there. Those are the three tools that Satan comes at you with. And he comes at you in a similar way as he did in Genesis chapter 3. He comes with a conversation. He doesn't come full frontal, you know, hey, I'm Satan and I'm going to destroy you. He, he's smarter than that. He comes alongside of you and engages you in a conversation. And is, is that does God really have your best interests at heart? And then he got her with the temptation, those three things. You saw that the fruit was good to eat. That's appealing to the flesh, pleasures of the flesh. Oh, I love the pleasures of the flesh, don't you? It's okay, you can say it. I'm not writing down your name. <laughs> But don't you, you know? I, I've said before, probably my greatest idol, my greatest false god is comfort. How easy it is for me to arrange my life and my schedule around those times when I can just have comfort. And that comfort is all about who? Me. My pleasure. My flesh. 
And, and then the delight to the eyes, that's the second one, triad of temptation. There's the trinity of God, there's the triad of temptation. The eyes, the, the, the way the glitz can get us and grab us. The pretty sparkly things, they call it now eye candy, you know. The way that sucks us in, lures us in. And then it's desired to make one wise. In John chapter 2, uh, sorry, 1 John chapter 2, John describes that as the pride of life. Uh, what it means in the ancient Hebrew in Genesis chapter 3 verse 6, it means here's something that's going to make me superior over everybody else. It was desired to make one wise. She, she wanted that fruit. He wanted, Adam wanted that fruit because it was going to make them wiser than they are, better than they are, or so they thought. So pride, that's the triad of temptation, the flesh, the eyes, and, and pride. And, and that is ultimately what feeds into this idea of meism, of taking even the worship of God and turning it into something about us. And this is what Jesus is pushing back against when he goes into the temple. And this is what um, Amos is preaching against, in, in, especially in chapter 4. In this second oracle, he's preaching against this idea of taking what is supposed to be for God and making it about you. You are essentially robbing God of his glory. That's a problem. I am essentially robbing God of his glory when I make him about me. That's a problem. And so Jesus comes along and says, it isn't about you, and that's actually the beauty of it. The beauty of it is that you, there isn't anything you can do that can be enough or good enough to be right with God, but I can, and I will impute that to you through the cross and the resurrection if you believe in me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's why the gospel is beautiful, and that's why it's the greatest love story. When Jesus hung on that cross... He was taking everything that we deserved and appropriating it to him and then giving us nothing that we deserve, which is his grace and love, mercy, and forgiveness, his redemption, his righteousness. His, uh, he, he makes us right with God. And all he asks of us is to believe and to push into that belief. That's the gospel. So next week, a uh, couple more oracles, one that's calling for repentance, so kind of take a little break from the doom and gloom, but then we get into an oracle of just of lament, of woes, of trouble. And then the last week, we finally get to hear the word of hope from Amos in the end. So uh, let me pray, and we'll get out of here. Uh, Lord God, we, again, we just thank you and, and, are, and are in awe of you because of your word and its truth and how timeless it is. As Tom has said so many times, God is timeless, and a timeless God would never produce dated material. And that's the joy that we have in reading and, and learning from and studying and understanding your word. So help us to do that. But, but also, as Tom says, don't let us be spiritually constipated. Uh, don't let us just learn for the sake of knowledge, but learn for the sake of transformation and love and serving. Uh, help us to walk a life that you call us into that is worthy of the gospel. That's our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for being here.